0: Before we get started, just a quick thing. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you can hear more stories just like this one.
1: Oh, six is when suddenly I start attracting a lot of attention, writing about housing, writing about subprime, writing about all the crazy things. Rates are going so low and that's what's driving the economy. That's a backwards real estate driven economy. It's obvious a train is coming. I can't tell you the day it's going to happen, but it's pretty clear the shit's going to hit the fan.
0: I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Barry Ritholtz, co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, LLC, Bloomberg colonist and host of the Masters in Business podcast. I'll give you a bit of a heads up. You're in for a wild ride with this one. Barry is an ebullient storyteller with an encyclopedic knowledge of just about everything, whether it be behavioral economics.
1: Wait, I don't understand. People clearly aren't rational. How can this be the fundamentals
0: of economics? or science fiction literature.
1: And so when I look at science fiction and you see it as a transition from the world of today to how we imagine the technology of the future, I
0: kind of feel the same way with various generations. Ideas ding and flash around like a pinball. His breadth of knowledge and interests, his big time personality and renegade attitude brought him a lot of success in his many and disparate business ventures. He has this me-against-the-world vision of his life where he is the protagonist bowling over everything holding him back from his way to the top. And boy, does he have a compelling way of telling his story. Act one of Barry's story, Growing Up. The part
1: of the line where we grew up, Plainview, was sort of suburban, Levittown, sterile. And um, I was never a big fan of suburbia.
0: Suburbia is boring. The prim and proper real estate housed an emptiness. There wasn't vitality. There wasn't stimuli. It was the same mundane cookie-cutter family copied into an architecturally uninspired neighborhood. The monotony Barry experienced was magnified by a hyperactive mind.
1: Having certain deficits is both a disadvantage and an advantage. So as a kid, I get diagnosed with ADHD and refuse medication. What we know as ADHD attention deficit hyperactivity. Disorder is not so much a behavior problem, but far more a problem with the brain's management system. It's executive. And one of the things about ADHD, it's it's really not attention deficit, it it's hyper attention where you could hone in on something in great detail to the detriment of everything else. Which is why if I'm interested in a subject, I could get straight A's. And if I'm don't care about it, it's agonizing for a C minus. I was kind of a hyperactive little kid. I was bored out of my mind in classes. The thing I have the most vivid recollection as being a a young kid in fourth grade and the teacher not being able to keep me entertained. One day the teacher says, we're going to have you start the fifth grade reading So, you know, she thought, all right, that'll keep him busy for a little bit. And like two days later, I come back and I'm, okay, I'm done. What do you mean? Which one did you read? I read them all. She's like, that's not possible. There are a hundred stories in each of them. I'm like, they're a page or two long. How long could it possibly take? Reading has been a wonderful, not only intellectual and educational stimulus, but just a wonderful way to learn about the world, and it's something that has kept me focused, not just as a kid in third or fourth grade, but my whole life.
0: Reading set Barry free. His peers were constrained by the filtered knowledge cavalierly taught by institutionalized education, but Barry aided by an unfettered curiosity could explore ideas and problems in his own unique and often avant-garde way. High school would further elucidate his penchant for self-education.
1: I recall getting into an argument with one of my calculus teachers back in high school and I remember putting down some answers to a series of questions on, a, on an exam. And I get an F, and I get called in after class. I go, why is this an F? These are all the right answers. She goes, you have to show your work. I'm like, I, I was late for the class. I didn't have time to show my work. I just put down my answers. So she goes, great, there's the chalkboard. Let's go through each one. And I remember there was one of the questions where the proof I showed her to reach the the answer, she's like, that is not the standard proof. I go, is the answer right? She's like, yes, but that's not how we taught it. I'm like, but that's not how I learned it.
0: Barry takes just as much pride in excelling in his own unconventional ways as he does in failing in conventional institutions. Honestly, he probably wears the badge of an F through defiance with higher honor than an A earned through compliance. It says, I'm not beholden to your institution of learning. I can succeed without it. I'm above it. What honor is there in excelling at the ordinary, being good at what people telling you to do? On the other hand, excelling at the extraordinary, autodidactic, proofless calculus, and light speed reading is not just honorable for Barry. It's a classic hallmark of the entrepreneur. You'll hardly ever hear an entrepreneur brag about how good they were at taking marching orders. Instead, they'll talk your ear off about how they successfully defied those orders. That's Barry. Chuck it up to ADHD, and that's certainly a factor, but I have a more non-DSM armchair diagnosis. He has a case of hubris. It gives him his brazen disregard for institutions and traditions and the compulsive need to outsmart them and beat the system. That's his M.O. behind everything he does throughout his childhood and career. That's not to say his hubris is a bad thing. It makes for a confident entrepreneur, a compelling person, and a great interview. With a good story, he's the hero battling stultifying institutions. And he loves to tell his story in his way. And he tells it loudly. I
1: always kind of thought that I don't know when else I could have been born, but I know I would not have done well had I been born a hundred or thousand years earlier. I would have been one of those people you know, killed for having a loud mouth at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I will never forget hanging out in the parking lot of King Cullen with, I think my car was a 67 Chrysler 300. My uncle had sold to me for a hundred bucks. And we were drinking beer. It was after work, and we were all, you know, just perfectly legal hanging out. And a police cruiser pulls up. Everybody is sort of... Quiets down and genius says, why are you harassing us? We're just here, you know, after work trying to blow off some steam. So the cop gets out of his car and walks out of me up to me and says, oh, so are you the leader of this crew? And I'm like, I stock the potato chip and soda aisle. I'm not the leader of this crew. We're just hanging out after work. What's the big deal? He takes out his pad, walks around the car. And makes a whole bunch of notes. And then when he's done, starts going down through the list. Broken taillight. uh, License plate hung inappropriately. Tinted windows too dark. Missing a muffler. And it came back and he goes, I have 14 tickets, which are about $2,000 worth of fines. And he just stops for a second. And everybody is silent. And I just, my whole body just puckered up. Like, uh, the car cost me $100. I can't, I can't afford 2000 And he rips a page off and hands it to me. And the page says, Warning. That's it. That's all it said. He didn't give me a single ticket. And he said, Going forward, you'll learn you better not mouth off the cops because it's an expensive mistake to make. And ever since then, every time I've ever gotten pulled over, I just could not get that memory out of my mind. But that cop had left such an effect on me that I just stunned police with honesty. And I can't tell you how many times they kind of walk away scratching their head and said, all right, well, don't do it again. But that's a time where my mouthing off actually worked to my benefit because He taught me quite a lesson, and it stayed with me a long time, and I am very much aware of how privileged I was to get that lesson, because that could have turned out much worse, be it financially or what have you.
0: The police encounter is Barry in a nutshell. He is confronted by a police officer, the ultimate authority figure. They have the ability to arrest, a license to kill, and their very job is to protect and propagate institutions. So Barry does what he does in these situations, and he mouths off. But a cop isn't some teacher wrapping his knuckles for flunking a test. They have real power. $2,000 of minor infractions worth of power. In a very, very, very rare moment, Barry scaled back his bombast. Here, he learned an important lesson. There are times to challenge authority, be an activist, fight city hall, and there are times when you stay silent. You have to pick your battles. You can't always go against the crowd against authority. His sophomore tendencies were waning, but he was in for another rude awakening when he entered college.
1: In high school, you know, you could get a B by thumbing through the assignment an hour before the exam. In college, that did not fly. And so I recall being frustrated that, oh, I really have to work. I can't just coast through this. Boredom was suddenly replaced with sheer terror. It was a very, very different experience. And the issue with applied mathematics and physics is by the time you figure out how deep you are in the hole, it's challenging to dig out. That was the first time I ever experienced an academic challenge where I couldn't wing it and I couldn't catch up.
0: It was a rude awakening, to say the least. His world was no longer consequence-free. Barry used to be pure id, headbutting cops, teachers, or anybody blocking his path to doing things the way he wanted to do them. He'd ace the SATs and get through them every time. Now, he was prostrating himself at the feet of higher education. It was an institutional brick wall he couldn't get out of his way. It must have been a bit emasculating for someone like Barry. Momentarily, he questioned his ability. Don't worry, though. Barry would soon be in tiffs with stodgy professors with textbook views of the world.
1: So I finished the first two years of math, physics, science. So I went through that, took one economics course, the first phrase from the professor. He writes homo economists on the board. And then he explains that people are rational profit-maximizing decision-makers, and that's what drives the economy. And my hand goes up on literally the first question, and I said, wait, I don't understand. People clearly aren't rational. How can this be the fundamentals of economics? And he said, well, assume that's how people are. So I close my book and I get up and I leave. And he goes, Where are you going? I'm like, Just assume I'm still in class. And I walk out, right to the registrar, drop economics, never took another economics class again. And I was always skeptical of economics because it's obviously based on a fundamentally flawed premise. And thank goodness for people like Richard Thaler and Bob Schiller and uh, uh, Kahneman and Tversky who taught us that until economics can deal with the behavioral side of humans, it's going to be fundamentally flawed. When you look at mathematics and you look at sciences like physics, there is a certain elegance to here is the structure of the problem, here are the variables we know, Here are the variables we don't know. Here's the formula that governs this.
0: Barry describes himself as having the mind of an idiot savant.
2: Idiot savants. It's a spectacular skill or talent that occurs in an autistic child. An island of brilliance, even genius, in the brain of someone who is otherwise extremely limited intellectually. Tonight we're going to meet three of these savants.
0: If a premise isn't syllogistically sound in his own mind, his synapses fritz. It doesn't compute, rejected, refused, his way or the highway. He tilted at his econ professor for espousing what he thought was a faulty premise. Then he discounted the entire discipline. He couldn't consider any other way of thinking about economics after fixating on a single flaw. He didn't read the seminal work on behavioral economics by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman to develop a more comprehensive understanding of the subject. Nope, the entire department is wrong and I am right. But even with this conviction in his own infallibility, he couldn't solve the problem of what to do next. Graduating college left him rather listless.
1: When I went to college, I went to a state school. It was 500 a semester. So I'm working at the local stereo store part-time while in college, and then after I graduate and I'm still living off campus, I continue working there for a year, which makes my parents insane. My mother and father pull me aside, and my mom says, tell you what, we'll pay for the LSATs, and we'll pay for law school. Take the test and see how you do. I look at multiple choice questions as little puzzles, and pretty obvious that two of the answers are totally wrong. And then your choice is down to two or three answers, and usually you can narrow it to two. And if you have just a little bit of information generally about the topic, You should be able to, through the process of deductive reasoning, come to the right answer.
0: Barry loves talking about how easy things were for him. The SAT? Eh, sleep through half of it. LSAT? It's a simple multiple choice exercise. It'll be like freezing through the Sunday crossword. No biggie. GMATs? Don't know anything about them. I'll teach them. One would think Barry floats lazily through life, absorbing intelligence like it was mana dropping from above, but that belies his actual work record. The guy always had a job. He paid through college. Barry mentions working, but seriously downplays it. He'll blow smoke into all his effortless accomplishments, but calls little attention to his hard work. It's like he thinks it's a better look to be successful without the work. It's more impressive with most of our episodes, this is the point in the story when the founder talks about struggling with projects, bleary-eyed and at a wit's end. Barry doesn't quite admit that. Maybe he never worked hard or doubted himself, or maybe an opportunity, a challenge that would engross Barry was waiting around the corner. Next stop was law school, a breeding ground for hard work and self-doubt.
1: The majesty of the law is just beautiful. (laughs) constitution, as long as you overlook its original sin, three-fifths of a person, if you put that aside, the law is a beautiful thing. There is an internal logic and coherence and structure that makes sense. It's rational. It's a world that is just so intellectual and so stimulating and so exciting that you can really get lost in the literary beauty
0: focused Barry's buzzing mind talking to him is like trying to wrangle the energizer bunny zigzagging from one idea to the next because of this, this episode was an absolute headache to edit, but worth it Law rings him in with as he says, it's rationality logic and coherence that's beauty that's elegance he finds artistry in those components of the law Intuitively, we would think just the opposite. Art is about passion, not rationality, right? He is drawn eyes wide and mouth agape to the beauty of law because it's one of the few things in his life that makes total sense. Showing your work on calculus tests doesn't make sense. Taking notes with rainbow highlighters doesn't make sense. Fixing up your car to be ticket-proof doesn't make any sense. And unfortunately for Barry, much of the theoretical beauty, the sense that law school promised didn't square in professional practice.
1: At the time, someone I knew had launched an entrepreneurial company. And so they needed a lawyer, I got hired. The two of us were working there and it took me about six months to realize it didn't scale. And the person I was friendly with earlier started working as a trader and he was just making gobs and gobs of money and having a lot of fun. He worked with a guy named Marty Averbach, and I get invited out to their office for a tour, and it's basically people sitting in front of screens, buying and selling stock. $350 Swiss. Trading money. 91. 6 and we get a whole tour, and they explain everything to me. And they said, what do you think? And I said, to me, it looks great. So their answer was, we know you're savvy with computers. We know you're good with math. You want to try a career as a trader. I'm like, fuck yeah, I would love to try that. And so my first day of work, we, I'm, I'm getting ready to, to go into the office. I'm really excited. Uh, my first day as a trader. And I get a phone call. Uh, From a friend, Bill, and Bill says, hey, uh, they're closing up the regional offices and they're going to roll out this new thing called online trading. Your job is waiting for you in Palo Alto, California, if you want to go out there.
0: The pendulum of fortune had swung to the positive extreme and quickly returned back to center. In a short span of time, Barry had stormed off from his law job, entered a company at the nexus of computing and finance, and was given an opportunity to chase this exciting career path to California. But it wasn't the right time. At that moment, Barry's life was complicated.
1: I had just gotten married, you know, six months before. My dad had passed away three months before. My mom was all alone in her house. I just... Didn't feel like that was a time I could pick up and go to California. It wasn't, I wanna go, but I'm afraid. It was, I can't even think about going. How can I leave everything here? The income is here. My mom is here. My family is here. My wife's family is here.
0: Barry could have struck gold with the E-Trade. But looking back, there's no regret. We get a little glimpse into his priorities beneath all the bluster of his business life, Barry's personal life took precedent. His family duties called the shots for his professional life. Considering Barry doesn't even for a millisecond think, what if, about the E-Trade proposition tells you how much he really cares about family life. So he stayed in New York and found himself on the trading list.
1: so first you're on a trading desk it's a long thing of about you know 10 guys and there are rows and rows and rows of it some months i made money some months i lost money and it was big swings up 150 grand a month down 50 grand a month was that stressful no it was not stressful so i'm very good at compartmentalizing things and being on a trading desk teaches you how to take those emotions and put them in a box and uh, not let them affect how you perceive markets. And I'll never forget coming into the office one day and one of the traders said, hey, Ritholtz, you're long X, Y, Z? Like, yeah, he goes, oh, did you see the news? It's a disaster. If your stomach drops, you're ready to throw up, you log onto your computer, there's no news. What are you, what are you talking about?
0: I'm not sure it comes across, so I'm going to elaborate here barry's coworker lying about the position of a stock is considered very bad trading etiquette when hundreds of thousands of dollars are at stake that false tip could jeopardize some real money the trading desk was a war zone so some of barry's co-workers might have retaliated by trashing that guy's belongings but barry thought of a slightly more clever way to teach this guy a lesson
1: that guy had a Porsche 911. He was a real jerk. And he used to have a guy show up in the parking lot to detail his car. And I paid the guy 20 bucks to hide it in around a building around the corner and let the guy think that the car was stolen. He called the police. Attention downtown units. We have a
2: 510 in progress sports car. reported stolen.
1: And while the cops are out there taking a statement about a stolen car, I walked out and said to him, hey, what's all the brouhaha? He goes, oh, my 9-11 got stolen. I'm like, no, it didn't. Uh, The detailer said he had to move it. It's in the next parking lot. There's a note on your desk. Somebody else left it there. He gives me a dirty look. The cops get mad. They walk away. And afterwards, I said, you ever give me bad dope on a stock I hold and you will never see that car again. I will scatter the pieces to the seven oceans. You will never see it again.
0: The trading desk was cutthroat. And to survive, Barry had to compartmentalize. One moment, he is a passive observer, a rational actor, methodically picking stocks. The next, he's vindictive, threatening, even menacing. I remember being surprised at this moment that a prank turned into a threat. I'm inclined to believe that he meant that threat seriously. But that's what the trading floor is like. It enforces one to compartmentalize personality and have autocratic control of emotion.
1: So a couple of seminal things take place. The first is I find the book Trading Wizards by Jack Schwager. So Jack Schwager basically interviews 20 of the top traders in the world. He asks, what was your process like? What were you thinking? Tell us how you approached this. And so I found that to be incredibly influential. I remember thinking, this is all about discipline. This is all about behavior. This is all about managing what you do as a trader or an investor that is much, much more significant than the actual mechanics of how you buy something or how you sell something. And so Trading Wizards sends me down a rabbit hole to find out more about behavior. And I start looking at various psychology books And eventually, I find a book by Tom Gilovich, a professor at Cornell, called How We Know What Isn't So. And that book just sends you down a rabbit hole of what are the things that impact our decision-making that we are not aware of? How do we make certain decisions where we're just completely oblivious to factors that are determining outcomes? As you work your way through the world of behavioral finance, you start to find all these little things that affect the decision-making process. How do we make better decisions? How do we make more informed decisions? And in the world of investing, how do we make decisions that are more likely to have a positive outcome uh, than less likely to have a positive outcome?
0: This understanding of decisions and its relation to finance would gain some clarity when Barry explored something that initially seems auxiliary gaming.
1: The greatest thing uh, on Tuesday nights was we would take the quote server for The Office and turn it into a Quake server. And Quake was one of the first multiplayer shoot 'em up games. <laughs> The thrill of that experience and the thrill of a successful trade were so similar that I began to recognize oh, trading isn't a profession, trading is a game. And if you happen to make money at it, that's fantastic. But what is driving this is the same endorphin hit that I get when I frag someone with a nail gun. Or pick up the grenade launcher and and shoot someone into the next generation.
0: Quake seemed to make these nebulous, maybe theoretical ideas real. He could see the emotional highs in real time. How do we make decisions? How do emotions frame our choices? And most importantly for Barry, how does all of this apply to the trading floor? He kept honing his understanding of social psychology and behavior, and pretty soon, this understanding returned results. Although he honed his intuition, he still needed to organize the cacophony of thought within his own head. To order his mind, he turned to writing.
1: As a trader, I started writing something on a daily basis. And I would write, these are the economic reports that are coming out, and here's the consensus. And I I basically would create a list each day in a way that was organized, and then I would tape it to my screen so it was always there. Eventually, people started saying, hey, can I make a copy of this? And by the way, we take that sort of stuff for granted today because you could go to any website or any finance firm, and, and there's that whole list comes out automatically. But in the mid-90s, that sort of stuff didn't exist. I wasn't trying to convince anybody to buy something or to sell something. I just wanted to organize my thoughts. And so that became something that got Xeroxed and shared around the office. And then later started getting faxed elsewhere. Like, I don't know how this is valuable to anybody else. It's just, I'm running
0: this for myself. Wait, so building up to that, what, was the reputation were you building and were you aware of how far it extended
1: you know i had a loose idea but there was no real reputation it was you know a handful of people maybe it was a few thousand people at its peak no that's nothing understand there's 300 million people then in in the united states there's 10 million people who worked in finance there's a couple of million traders it's a rounding error it's a handful of friends and family
0: an exercise that began out of personal practicality, started to gain organic traction. People around the office started to see value in how Barry viewed the world and coveted the information that he was gathering. For Barry, his notes were merely a coping mechanism for his chaotic thoughts, his way of controlling his ADHD. But maybe controlling is the wrong word. ADHD seems to be a superpower. It's what led him to independent reading in elementary school, unique problem solving in high school, and now it's what led him to be a trusted information source within a small group of traders. Now, Barry wasn't only writing for himself. He had an enthralled audience who voraciously read everything he wrote. Maybe realizing his proclivity for prose, Barry moved towards writing and looked for jobs in research.
1: I have an interview with Larry Hart, who is the chief technology strategist for Prime Charter, and he's looking for a research monkey. He's like looking for an assistant. And I have enough math and science background that I can talk about technology intelligently with him. When he asks me questions, I say to him, I don't know anything about that. It'll take me 20 minutes to get up to speed. He's like, have you ever used a Bloomberg? And I'm like, no, but I'm sure I could figure it out. I mean, it wasn't like intimidation. It's like, dude, I, I got through law school. Learning a Bloomberg terminal isn't gonna be, you know, it's not gonna be that hard. So I get hired and I start working as uh, his research assistant. And Hart was one of these like brilliant savants who could not communicate to humans. And I was sort of his liaison to the to the humans. So he would do these presentations to a boardroom and he would give these guys fantastic stock recommendations that they didn't understand what the hell he was saying. They couldn't sell. And and one day, um, a couple of senior brokers pull me aside and say, we love Larry. We don't understand a fucking word this guy says. We trust you. You seem to speak his language. Pick a couple of stocks and write it up in a way that we can explain to clients. And so I did that. And so I write these two one-pagers up. I give it to the brokers. And of course, they just explode. Those were giant winners for everybody. And years later, when EMC rolled over and broke like a 10-year uptrend... I wrote up a piece, which I think I may have even published in the street.com, explaining why EMC was now a sell and why you should never fall in love with a stock that when it's had a great run and that uptrend, that long-term secular trend breaks, get the hell out of Dodge. And I thought I was doing a favor to all these guys at Prime Charter who you know, made so much money off the call. And I sent this, I emailed this to them and I got like razzed, like, listen, dude, nobody cares what you think about EMC. This is a money maker. You don't know about the future of the company, you know. So when confronted with fundamentally factually different information from your belief, uh, people can either change their minds or do what most people do, which is get busy refuting the data. And so, rather than accept the fact that what was a giant money-making stock that people built their careers on, that its run was over, these guys held it to the to the very end.
0: We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. <laughs> that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie. I can help you. Hello, I, I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with a, a friend? I'm trying to understand. You-, you, want to- you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seats. Sharing. Right. So, like, like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could
2: not sit
0: on top of you during the ride. Ugh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting it on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha.
2: But I mean, they will let you sit next to
0: each other. You know, I feel like I... It's just not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. I mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other,
2: lay on each other, stuff like that. But to sit sit in each other's lap, that's probably going to be
0: an issue. But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now... Back to the podcast. The warning bells were ringing, yet no one seemed to heed Barry's advice. Why were these traders hell-bent on holding on to losing stock? If we were to delve into cognitive theory, there are a wide range of scientific explanations such as belief perseverance. Belief perseverance, also known as conceptual conservatism, is
1: maintaining a belief despite new information that firmly contradicts it. Such beliefs may even
0: be... But what if there was a simpler explanation? To Barry, trading is simply a game, a game of winners and losers, and everyone wanted to be the victor, the last standing shooter of an adrenaline-pumping quake game. Although we are all driven by the high of victory, according to Barry, there is no place for emotion in the high-risk world of trade. Chivalry had long died with the knights in shining armor, and in the modern financial system, there was only one code of conduct, winning by any means necessary. Yet these simple rules were obfuscated when traders let loyalty and pride cloud their judgment, kicking logic to the curb. Luckily for Barry, numbers were more easily fathomed than emotion. And being hired by heart gave Barry the opportunity to show his genius. Barry knew stocks and translating his knowledge onto paper was easily within his wheelhouse. Seeing people enjoy his reports made him realize that he could make a career out of his two passions, trade and writing. Writing had always been a hobby, a way of grounding his jumbled thoughts. But now it was another tool in his arsenal. Gaining traction in the writing arena, Barry was garnering a growing following. So to meet those demands, he started his own blog from scratch.
1: So in 99 or 98, I set up a site on Yahoo GeoCities. This is back in the day of HTML. You had to learn HTML coding. It would take me 15 to 20 minutes to write that daily write-up, and then two hours to code it on Yahoo GeoCities. Perfect example of uh, the difference between attention deficit and hyper-attention. I start going through a site to learn how to set up certain things on HTML, and I start at nine in the morning. And I'm just really into it. I'm sitting at a desk in the, in the living room. Unbeknownst to me, it's now seven o'clock at night and it's dark and I've been there for 12 hours.
0: Obviously, you thought it was significant enough to repurpose it from a Xerox or a piece of paper to a website like that makes it more official. And I think that sets the precedent that, hey, like this could actually expand to something beyond a piece of paper on my desk.
1: I didn't get that sense until 9 11. So, as Marty Averbuck and Bill was the people who hired me originally at E Trade, Bill was working in a shop, and the headquarters was the 29th or 37th floor of Two World Trade. I was in the Long Island office. comes, I hear a plane, uh, I'm driving to work, and I hear a plane hits the tower on Howard Stern, and I think he's a goofball. Hey,
2: I should make a, uh, I should, I don't
1: mean to interrupt the fun, but uh, this is a breaking news story, a
2: serious news story. A plane has crashed, hold it, into the World Trade Center. You're kidding! The World Trade Center
1: is on fire. Uh, And I, I walk into the office, and, you know, on CNBC, there's the smoke coming out of Tower One. And literally, as I'm in the office for you know a few minutes, the second plane hits. <laughs> it was just a rumor. Somebody just called and said that on CNN, a second plane just crashed into one of Stop it! A oh, second wait, plane. Wait, wait a minute! There are at that two buildings, buildings, and
2: that is lower. What I so said. it's a
1: terrorist attack, know, isn't it? One stuck.
2: smoke in lower Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the whole building, building just starts to report. Major, oh, t- holy smokes! Smoke. Another one just hit the building. Wow! Oh my God.
1: And so you immediately know, oh, this isn't an accident, this is an attack. And I get into my office and flip on the computer, and I get a panicked phone call from Deneen, Bill's wife. Let me see if I can reach him. And I just start hitting redial and eventually get through to his cell phone, and he's giving me a running narrative of everything that happened. He came up out of the subway, went against the building to light a cigarette, used the building to shield him from the wind, he lights the cigarette. He looks up. He sees all these papers flying from up top. He doesn't know what to make it. And then, boom, the second plane hits as he's right next to the building. And training kicks in. He heads to water. Uh, World Trade Center was not that
0: far. When you say training, he was an ex-Marine. Oh, yeah? so he was a Marine jungle combat
1: instructor. But um, Bill gives me a running narration, and we continue the conversation until the first tower comes down and the cloud of smoke breaks the cell connection. I get a hold of him when he's in a car on the way home, I think. Of course, I call Deneen and tell him he's fine. He's on on the way home. And um, that night I type this whole thing up and I email it to him and I say, hey, uh, is this accurate? And he says, yeah, that's accurate. I go, are you comfortable with me putting that on the website? He's like, yeah, you could put that up there. So I post it at like nine o'clock at night. I hit publish. I don't think anything about it. I just think, all right, a few dozen people are going to see this tomorrow. I wake up the next morning. There's 900 new unread emails. It was apparently a very early first-person description of what took place. It got picked up by Yahoo Geocities. It got picked up by a whole bunch of, I remember, Good Morning Silicon Valley picked it up. And suddenly, I'm like, well, this is horrible, but who
0: knew the Internet is going to be read by everybody one day? Waking up to 900 unread emails, Barry couldn't believe that something he had written had become viral overnight. Barry began to understand the internet as this incredibly powerful tool to spread a message. But this positive reception and this realization was bittersweet. Barry knew he was a benefactor of devastation. At the same time, this coverage was necessary. People needed to understand the utter pandemonium, the stress, the uncensored, raw emotional upheaval that filled the vacuum left by the Twin Towers. As the dust settled, as Barry's mind quieted, he had an epiphany. It wasn't like a triumph.
1: It wasn't a moment of success. It was an insight that was shocking. It's like, oh, you can reach people by giving them something truthful and honest that they can't get elsewhere. Like, that was the great insight. It wasn't, oh, I could use the internet as a publishing tool. It was, oh, people are so hungry for something verisimilitude, to something real and honest and straightforward because that's not what they're necessarily getting elsewhere. But I suspect on the strength of that post, they offered me the opportunity to start beta testing, type pad... And talk about revelation. Wait, I don't have to do any sort of coding? No, you put your text here. You can upload your chart. You can upload pictures and images. So instead of taking 20 minutes to write it and two hours to code it, I could take 20 minutes to write it, 20 minutes to rewrite it, 30 minutes to add something else to it, and still spend less time and have a much superior written product.
0: Did that change how you viewed your writing?
1: Oh, 100%. So now I start writing much more regularly and I start posting stuff in much greater detail because the coding is no longer the impediment to getting something out there.
0: Technology streamlined Barry's writing freed from programming the minutiae of his blog posts, he now had time to more comprehensively cover the topics in which he was interested. He straddled the line between textbook and editorial, providing a refreshing insight for his audience rooted in behavioral finance. From his catchy titles, it was obvious that he made the seemingly boring topic of behavioral economics sagaciously fun. He captured his audience because he knew what they craved, relevance. (laughs) It was plain and simple. People wanted to read about themselves and things that related to themselves. And Barry's psychoanalysis gave traders and people interested in the financial world a deep dive into their own psyches. More attention would be coming his way.
1: One day I come home from a long weekend and my voicemail is all filled up on the answering machine. And it's like, dude, I heard your name mentioned on Cuddle." Well, it turns out that Larry Kudlow read a quote of mine in October 02 in the Wall Street Journal. And Kudlow says, I don't know who this Ritholtz guy is, but he's absolutely right. So I track down his email address and I send them, hey, thanks for mentioning me. Here's the quote in the Wall Street Journal. Here's the research piece that it's based on. And don't hear anything from him again. And then a few weeks later, talks about something on the air. And I, oh, I just wrote something about that. And so I send it off to him. I hear nothing. The third time was the charm. The third time I write something up, I send it off to him. And lo and behold, an email goes from him to the producer. Hey, this guy, Rit stuff is really good. Get him on the show. I start doing the show and that becomes, you know, once a month. By 06, I'm writing about the backwards real estate driven economy. And so 06 is when suddenly I start attracting a lot of attention writing about housing writing about subprime writing about all the crazy things normally what happens is there's a recession the fed cuts rates real estate uh the economy begins to improve people get jobs they get raises then they go out and buy houses not the economy crashes people lose their jobs and they're pulling money out of their houses because rates are going so low and that's what's driving the economy that's a backwards real estate driven economy It's obvious a train is coming. I can't tell you the day it's going to happen, but it's pretty clear the shit's going to hit the fan. There were three charts I used. One was median house price to median house income. The other was cost of rent relative to cost of ownership. And the third was GDP relative to the value of all the housing in the country. And so that leads me down the rabbit hole of investigating mortgages and what was going on. And once you work your way down that rabbit hole, it's clear the whole house of cards is going to come down. So I start writing about this all the time. And I had done this piece for the street.com called Cult of the Bear. It was a three-part series. The third piece is, so if I'm right and real estate falls 20, 30, 40 percent, what does that mean for the Dow? I try and reverse engineer the Dow if there's a real estate crash. Effectively, I come up with the number 6,800 and put it in print. And not only am I the outlier, but I'm the outlier by like 40 percent. Everybody else is just way, way ahead of me. 2007 comes around and nothing happens. The market continues to go higher. Cudlow brings me out to, to give me grief. Now I'm on once a week. But meanwhile, once the Dow peaked in October 07, suddenly I'm a seer. And in January, I go from two or three times a month to once a week to twice a week, and I'm on all the time. It's just a tremendous amount of time and effort and energy and schlepping to New Jersey, and it's it's a big pain in the ass. But it's worth it because it's a lot of fun. It's interesting. It's good for business. My office was thrilled to death with it. Everybody was was happy, even if CNBC is unhappy with me saying, yeah, this is a shitstorm and it's going to get much, much worse.
0: Everybody was happy, sort of. Very often, what the crowd believes and what actually is happening aligns. For the past 11 years, the crowd had been right. Things were about to change. The recession of 0.8. percent here, a loss of 37 points or so. Apple shares are just getting hammered this morning. We're down by between 3 and 4.5% generally across these markets. Let's talk about
1: the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. We're red everywhere, essentially. Down by 4
0: 5%. And when things change, when the economy goes off the rails and emotions are running high, that's when there is opportunity. In going against the crowd. From his run in with the police officer, he knew that there were some battles to fight and some to let go. He realized that this was a battle to fight. After years of making the argument that the economy was superficially driven by low interest rates instead of authentic economic activity, Barry was finally being recognized for his financial knowledge. But he wasn't a psychic, he was a man of statistics. His objectivity allowed him to see obvious patterns in the data and it once again gave him an edge. They had to pay attention to him and the attention led to a flood of new opportunities.
1: At the time, Tim O'Brien, he ended up at Bloomberg with the charge of building a new section with him and David Shipley called Bloomberg View, which is now Bloomberg Opinion. So Shipley has me start writing for them. And when I'm getting the tour and they're showing me the television facility, here's where Trading Wizards and Jack Schwager is in the back of my head. And they said, would you like to create a television show on finance? And I said, no, but I'll tell you what I want to do. A television show doesn't really hold my interest, but I'll tell you what I'd like to do. I'd like to sit down with the smartest, most successful people in finance and business, like 90 minutes to two hours. Who are you? How did you get that way? A deep dive into your life. And they laughed and laughed and they said, tell you what, no one's going to sit with you for two hours. No one's going to sit with you for 90 minutes. But to get an hour of broadcast radio, 32 minutes plus traffic, news, sports, weather, and commercials. You get us 32 minutes and we'll figure, you know, we'll put the rest of it online and nobody else will pay attention to it. They tee this up as a test run, and I record 20 of them before one of them is released. Al Mayer is the head of radio at the time. Now he's the head of all electronic media at Bloomberg. Each week after I would do one of these, he would pull me aside. It was like, boy, come here and sit on my knee. And he would tell me everything that was terrible about it. I would be wounded for the first 12 times it happens. And then once he said, By the way, you circled back and asked this question. That was good. You need to do more of that. And he goes, That's why we have these conversations, because I want to see you getting better. That's like, Oh, you're not just trashing me? He's like, No, no, I'm trying to teach you radio. I've been doing this for 40 years. Learn from my experience.
0: That philosophy almost seems foreign to you because, it, like, it's because, like, your professional career was bred in this war room with sharp elbows and people cutting at the throats. And then this guy who's been in radio, which I imagine is a little bit softer, uh, has a little bit of a, a softer touch. Suddenly, you're like, wait, this guy isn't trying to cut my throat. He's actually trying to help prop me up like was that did you have that realization in that moment
1: yeah yeah in fact in fact Al basically pulled me aside and said, here's what you need to do. And did it weekly for like a year. And now I get emails from him. Hey, you made me late the other day. I was in Home Depot and I was in the parking lot listening to the show. And I just was riveted. I couldn't get out of the car. I had to listen to the whole thing. And this is from a guy who basically said, when a guy tells you he kills his wife and buried her in the basement, don't just go on to the
0: next question. Ask him why. Ask him how he didn't get caught. With those years of practice and, and the advice from Almera, how did you progress to the podcast?
1: Anybody I knew who I could talk into doing the show, I did. And really, so the first year was just my friends. And then something really interesting happened the second year. And this comes back to the issue of luck. Bill Gross finally gets chased out of Pimco.
2: In a surprise move, Pimco's Bill Gross has left the company he founded more than four decades ago.
1: And I said, I would love to do a piece that basically was Bill's final. He used to do what he called IOs, investment outlooks. It was a monthly IO. I said, I would love to do a piece for Bill's final IO. Bill loves the idea, says you should do it. I'm like, excuse me? I download a bunch of his monthly IOs onto my iPad or, or print them out. And on the train home, I read like eight of them. So once I had Gross's voice in my head, everything I wrote sounded like him. And so I wrote this outrageous note basically telling Pimco to go screw themselves and why he's better than them outrageous over the top. And I failed to calculate how the Bloomberg machinery would file down the sharp edges and turn it into something less obviously satirical. And I submit it and it comes out the next day and it blows up. And the people from PIMCO are calling Bloomberg screaming. I get a bunch of emails from people, including Bill Gross, who thinks it's hilarious. And I get an email from an anonymous former PIMCO employee who sends me everybody at PIMCO's bonuses. And while they have been rumored to be enormous for years, nobody's proven it. Here's a spreadsheet. Bill Gross, $300 million, 2010. So I take this document into the senior editors at Bloomberg, and I say, based on my last piece, somebody sent this to me, and I think it's legit. We assign Mary Duffy a straight news piece on it, and she is gonna call Pimco like eight o'clock at night East Coast time after the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have gone to bed, after they've you know their edition is out for a comment. So what happens is the next day at 7 a.m. her news item runs, and at 7 a.m. my opinion piece runs, she references my opinion piece. The two of those things are the most popular pieces on the terminal for like weeks and weeks. And it goes crazy, and I get an email from Bill Gross that says, well, thanks, now now, how am I going to walk around Newport Beach that people know I'm a billionaire? Bill, everyone knew you were a billionaire anyway, and so if, if I said anything that's wrong, if you want to come on the show and defend yourself? So he comes out and he does the show, and then the greatest thing in the world was after the Bill Gross conversation, I walk him over to Mike Bloomberg, whose desk is 20 feet from my studio, and the two of them have a long conversation, which I cannot share because it's between the two of them, but I'm just right there in between the two of them chatting. It's, I'm in heaven listening to these guys talk because it's just great. And ever since that Bill Gross experience, two things have happened. First. People I've been chasing who've been saying no for months and months and months start to say yes. But second, every time I have like a rock star name, I walk them over to Mike and the two of them have a five or 10 minute conversation and I just sit there like a pig in shit. Could not be happier listening and eavesdropping in this conversation.
0: But it wasn't just his guests that were increasingly spectacular. He was blossoming into a world-class interviewer. Seemingly shedding his sophomoric high school days of showing up to the SATs with no preparation, Barry now prepares four hours of questions for his interviews. Something interesting to note is that his articles and interviews don't stand independently. They are intrinsically tied to his business and his business model. We haven't really touched too much on the specifics of how he started this firm, and that's intentional. Barry is a really interesting guy, and so there are a lot of potential paths we could have taken through his life. I felt that the one that embodied Barry most authentically was media and writing, but now let's tie it all together and talk about his business.
1: I go to um, Linsen Palooza, which is an event out in Coronado Island, and I go to the pool. And sitting next to me is this guy who introduces himself. Hey, uh, my name is Josh. I live in Long Island and work in New York. And he goes, Ritholtz. He goes, I've been reading your blog for years. I love what you do. Blah blah blah. How did you get to the sell side while well, I was on the buy side? And I was doing everything the firm asked me. And they uh, basically gave me a bonus that I was insulted by. And I said, I love you guys, but I can't work for you. And I, I left. And I ended up joining this firm. He goes, well, how do I get on the sell side, meaning the advisor side? I said, you know, sell your practice or or bring your clients over. So Josh Brown joins me at, at the firm was called Fusion. 08, 09, I kind of called the market People are offering us money constantly. And Josh says to me, dude, what are you doing turning this money down or giving it to the firm? I'm like, well, first of all, I don't like the way the firm manages money. I I don't like their alternatives. I don't like their trading. And then second, I don't want to deal with humans. I don't don't want to deal with them. They're a pain in the neck. So Josh is, is smart and he's been working. He was running a brokerage firm with like 100 brokers. He knew all the administrative back end stuff. And he said, tell you what. Stop saying no to money because you're an idiot. I will deal with the clients. I will deal with all the administrative nonsense. You write the research. You manage the portfolio. Let's do that. So we do, and, and we hit the eject button. We launched the firm in September 2013. We're 32 people. We don't have any outside private equity, no outside investors, no leverage, no borrowed money. The model that began in 03, this is quality information, here it is for free, do with it what you wish, kind of became our marketing. It, it, it wasn't intentional. It was, hey, when lots and lots of people are offering you their money to manage, don't turn them down. And so we continued, I continued to write, Josh continued to write. My podcast by year three suddenly started to take off. Now we're doing something like 8 million downloads a year. The numbers are just idiotic. I think people can tell when something is organic and real. All of our clients come to us. We don't have any salespeople. We don't have any marketing emailers. We don't have any of the stuff that Wall Street usually has. Hey, you could do this yourself. You have to be smart, disciplined, and hardworking, and it takes a little time, but you could do this yourself. If you don't want to do it yourself, well, we can probably help you. And that's about as much of a sales
0: pitch as we ever make. Barry led with authenticity, and on Wall Street, authenticity was lacking. So instead of building a firm that was a black box of complexity, Barry did it his own way, the same way he's been doing things his whole life. By being direct, real, and unapologetically Barry. There was no marketing scheme, no skeevy sales pitch. What you saw is what you got. And that's Barry in a nutshell. Although Barry's always been outspoken to a fault, it was through writing that he had come to accept himself. Writing grounded his thoughts. Writing gave him a voice. And ultimately, writing launched his career. It changed his life. You originally started writing to organize your thoughts. It became a tool for you to connect with the people that you admired most. Now it's even a tool for you to grow your business. Why do you think your writing matters and what do you want it to do?
1: So I started writing every day because I wanted to become a better writer. But 20 years ago, I started to do some research. How do you become a better writer? Well, there's only two ways. First, read really good writing. As part of my daily organization, I put together, these are the 10 most interesting things to read And the other way to become a good writer is by writing. And so I'm up early in the day. I've never been a late sleeper. And so I always try and write for an hour or so a day. And I got really good at cranking out three, 400 word things about here's a chart and here's what it means and blah, blah, blah. Or the process of being able to communicate in written form is just a muscle that gets better the more you use it. The fact that it turned out to be helpful for business was another lucky accident again the the theme today is smart is good lucky is much better
0: smart is good but luck was much better like many entrepreneurs barry acknowledges how luck played part in eventual success although writing entered barry's life as a stroke of luck his consistent effort to write every day ultimately turned his hobby into a career. As someone whose strengths initially laid in mathematics, high school Barry probably would have laughed if you told him he was going to become a writer. But somehow, he managed to create harmony out of an unlikely parent. Luck definitely plays a role in an entrepreneur's journey, but luck isn't enough. Behind the luck, there needs to be a hardworking, passionate individual willing to lay it all on the line. And Barry did that by writing relentlessly day in and day out. Writing started as a means to an end, a vessel for his ADHD, but now it had become an integral part of his identity. Barry has worn a lot of different hats throughout his career, from entrepreneur to radio host to wealth manager, but all of them have led back to one thing, writing. What advice would you give to a a young entrepreneur pursuing something in media or business? That maybe hasn't started yet or is just getting started. What advice would you give that person?
1: I'm going to answer a different question that will answer your question. So, one of the questions I ask people is What do you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first getting started? One of the things I wish I knew when I was first getting started is that you are constantly developing a stack of skills. And the more you can sharpen that skill set and the more tools you can add to that skill set, the better off you will be. Now, being on this side of the employee-boss divide, I've had employees who are just amazing in anticipating what the company and what I'm going to need. I wish I understood that my job wasn't just to come in and do my job. My job was to solve problems for the people I worked for. And understanding that relationship and understanding how to become valuable to somebody is something I wish I knew, you know, 25, 30 years ago.
0: Just keep writing. Keep honing your craft. Having gotten in trouble for his unfiltered mouth, Barry had no direction for his constantly buzzing mind. No outlet that could harness the full potential of his abundant thoughts. Law school provided him a temporary solution for his nonstop curiosity, but it wasn't enough. He needed a permanent home for his musings and writing was it. But Barry was a man of logic, a man comforted by numbers. And that was a part of his identity that he couldn't relinquish. So instead of choosing between numbers and letters, Barry combined the two, establishing a niche in the world of behavioral economics. As a writer, he found a way to be himself, free from judgment. He didn't have to worry about filtering his blunt disposition. He found a place that accepted his authenticity and allowed him to speak his truth. Writing had not freed him from his ADHD, but rather writing harnessed the power of it. Defying the odds, Barry embraced this disability and found a career path that rewarded his quirks. I think he teaches an important lesson. Don't always blunt your sharp edges. The very things that could get you in trouble, rub people the wrong way, or hold you back from institutional success could be assets, could be the keys to the life of your dreams. So what are your sharp edges? How can they help you? Where do they help you? Think about it and I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to. Subscribe to our newsletter at FindingFounders.com. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lynn, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan Onissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.